Once again, could we bow in prayer before we open our Bibles, or if you wish to open them now, have them open there at Ezra 7, and let's just come to the Lord afresh and need His help, and let's pray to that end. Father, we bow before Thee, and we continue in Thy presence with the awareness of our need of God, the need of the Holy Spirit to be shed abroad over our hearts, over our minds, and we pray for that experience, for that blessed help that Thou dost give. Lord, help me, help the hearer. May everything redound to Thy glory. May our Lord Jesus be magnified. We ask this in His name, and for His sake, and for His everlasting praise and glory. Amen and amen. So we come to Ezra chapter 7. You are aware that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were written by the men whose names form their titles. Each book contains some memoirs and other details about the respective authors, Ezra and Nehemiah. It is easily seen that a very close relationship exists between these two books. They are books that cover a period of almost 100 years from 538 to uh, the year 433 B.C. That fact of their close association is actually reflected in Old Testament history because these two books were combined by the Jews and they appeared in ancient manuscripts as a single writing. That actually continued into New Testament days, into the early centuries of the Christian church until Jerome of Prague made a formal distinction between them in his Latin translation of the Bible, that which is called the Vulgate Bible, which was completed in 405 AD. Those historical details show to us how closely associated these two books actually were, though they were, uh, technically speaking, two separate books. They contain a common theme very important theme, the theme of God's faithfulness to His own precious Word. That's a theme that is displayed in the return of the people from Babylon. That central theme is demonstrated in a threefold way. The Jews physically were returned to God's land. They were religiously reinstated to God's worship and they were spiritually restored to God's law. Through the prophet Jeremiah, this all had been predicted. I'm not turning you now for time's sake to where we could go in Jeremiah 29 to look at verses there in which Jeremiah had made the prediction about God doing good to His people, bringing them back from Babylon and so forth. It is a passage that we've looked at many a time and it is there for all to see. But the unifying theme, therefore, of these two books is God's faithfulness to His own Word, and we should never forget that when we read these books. As we keep it in mind, it will enable us to read Ezra and Nehemiah with great benefit to our hearts, to our souls. Recognition of that common theme of God's faithfulness as it appears in these books, will help us also then to grasp the purpose, 
of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the purpose of these two books is to exalt God. That's it in a nutshell, and a very biblical nutshell. It is to exalt Almighty God. We see Him exalted over nations. We see Him exalted over pagan rulers. We see Him exalted over their political regimes and agendas as He fulfills His own redemptive purposes for this world. Ezra and Nehemiah bring that before us, that purpose before us, the exaltation of Almighty God. The, the two books show us God providentially and sovereignly bringing His people back home. Supernaturally and irresistibly, the Lord worked in those days. He worked in the hearts of a succession of Persian monarchs, Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, and then Artaxerxes. He did so to bring his people, his people back to his covenant. He did so to assemble them around a rebuilt temple. He did so to work in them a rededication of mind and heart, which we have been observing in the last few messages. A rededication of mind and heart to his will and his ways. And he did all this in order to bring about the first coming of the promised Messiah. Therefore, it is absolutely clear that these two books show us God exalted above all other men, above all other things, all other matters that I've mentioned, in order to fulfill all these issues that I have left before you in these opening remarks. However, though God worked sovereignly, and providentially, and supernaturally, and irresistibly. At the same time, he did not work without human instrumentality. It is interesting that the returns from Babylon were in three consecutive stages. There was the first return that we've already seen in chapters 1 to 6, under men like Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. There's the second return, as we now see it, in chapter 7, with Ezra himself leading that return. And then there's a third return that is recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah. From all of that, we learn that God worked, as He always does, according to a very distinct arrangement. Gradually, He brought about the fulfillment of His will under the leadership of different men, various men, who were suited for the tasks that were allotted to them and who faithfully carried out those duties as the Lord led them to do. Now, in the light of those facts, we are therefore taught that at the right time, the right man was in the right place to do the work that had to be done and lead in this movement of revival and even reform. Because remember that there's no true revival, and that's the theme of Ezra, revival in Ezra's times. But there's no true revival that does not lead to reform, reformation of manners and beliefs and all society 
All of that is impacted in Reformation when God sends revival, and He uses a man or men to bring about those blessed impacts and those blessed consequences that I've just mentioned to you in these remarks. Such a man was Ezra. Ezra, therefore, was there at the right time. He was the right man. He was in the right place. That's how we sum him up. That's how we see him as he appears on the page of Scripture itself. I know his name is given to the whole book simply because he wrote it. But it's not until now that he actually comes from Babylon and he leads the work of God on into a whole new era and into a whole new perspective of things as far as what took place is concerned. His name is given to the entire book, as I've said, and he now appears at this stage in the story. This is the moment for which he has been prepared by Almighty God. He was God's man, a unique man, a special servant raised up to attend to a certain task. It was the task of leading the Lord's people into necessary spiritual reformation. I've just touched on that, but I now reiterate it. It was to lead God's people into necessary spiritual reformation. That is the subject of chapter 7 to 10 of this book of Ezra. And so I want to come to begin today and looking at, we're looking at the second half of the book in this opening message of that section. And I want to just bring to you two background facts about Ezra himself. We need to look at the man himself. We must do justice to this man, what the Bible has to say about him. And there are two very outstanding details that come to our minds as we look at this man Ezra. Number one, we have his descent, or his genealogy, if you will. It's found here in verses 1 to 5. He came from the tribe of Levi. That was the tribe of, uh, the tribe of Israel that was chosen by God to serve in the tabernacle at first, in the days of Moses, and then, of course, later on in the temple of Solomon, and now in this new temple, this second temple that has just been completed, as we saw in chapter 6. That tribe, the tribe of Levi, were the men uh, from that tribe. They were the men who handled holy and sacred things. So that's part of his descent. He came from that tribe, but he specifically came from the family or the house of Aaron. He's mentioned there, as we read the genealogy in verse number 5, the last name, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, and in between Ezra's name in verse 1 and Aaron's name in verse number 5, you have a selection of men who were, who were Ezra's ancestors. And so you have his descent here, the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. You see, Aaron's house or family was the priestly family. There was the whole tribe of Levi, therefore they were all called Levites. But in that tribe of Levi, as Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy show you, and other books as well, in that tribe of Levi there was a single family, the, the family of Aaron, that was chosen to be the priestly family. And so this man Ezra comes 
from that particular family. He was therefore qualified to serve the Lord in a certain manner that was essential in this needy day. He needed to be from that tribe. He needed to be from the house of Aaron. And therefore, he was the right man for the day and the time with his priestly descent and from that holy tribe that handled the things of God. Now, we learn a lesson from this. And that lesson is that every believer has a priestly descent. Every believer belongs to a holy nation of priests who are set aside to serve Almighty God. In many ways, that's elementary to New Testament Christianity. And yet at times it's forgotten, terribly forgotten by us, the Lord's people. And we need to remind ourselves of it. The Bible describes Christians as a priesthood and makes it absolutely clear that they are a holy nation or tribe of people set apart to serve the Lord God Almighty. Now let's go to 1 Peter. And I want you to, I encourage you to keep your finger or a marker in 1 Peter because we'll go back there a, a few times at this stage in this message. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look with me at verse number 5. And Paul, uh, Peter here addresses the Christians to whom he writes and he says this, 1 Peter 2, 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now we should mark the terms that are used here. God's people are described as a spiritual house. They are described as a holy priesthood. Those terms are applied to New Testament Christians. Those Christians are identified for us. If you go back to chapter 1, in terms of where they were found and what their background was, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That was a huge swathe of the known world of that day, right there in what we call the Middle East. What you have in, in, in view there in those terms in, in verse 1 is actually what would be described today as modern-day Turkey, or at least a huge part of, of Turkey. That's where you're looking at. And back in those times, in the first century, there were many, many Christians who were saved by God's grace, obviously. They weren't Christians otherwise. They were saved under Paul's ministry in his first missionary journey. And then those who were saved under that missionary journey, or at that missionary journey time, then they became the... Uh, proponents of the gospel and, and the winners of others. And now Peter writes to them, as we find here. But read on to verse 2, because verse 1 gives their geographical location. And remember this, it's to these people that Peter says in chapter 2, verse 5, ye are a spiritual house, ye are a holy priesthood. And so there they are in all those places mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1. But look at verse 2 elect according to the foreknowledge, and that word foreknowledge means foreordination. Chosen is what the word elect means. 
chosen according to the foreknowledge, foreordination of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There they are fully identified now. Verse 1 is their physical, geographical location. And yet verse 2 gives their spiritual identity. Who are these people? They are sinners saved by grace. They are brought out of a fallen world of that day. They are delivered because of God's sovereign foreordaining choice, because of the operation of the Holy Spirit in their hearts as He worked in them and applied redemption to them. And that comes out in the latter part of verse 2 where it says, unto obedience. And that refers to the obedience of faith. And what's the outcome of faith been given to a sinner? It leads to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, as the latter part of that verse shows you. Here is their spiritual identity. Here is their spiritual descent. Oh yes, their geographical descent is given briefly in verse 1. But very little is there about them in a sense. Yet when you get into verse 2, this is what really matters. This is why they are now called a spiritual priesthood, or sorry, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Those who are the objects of the saving purposes and the saving grace of a triune God. Because in chapter 1, verse 2, you've got the eternal trinity. You've got the Father, you've got the Spirit, you've got the Son, all operating in the lives of sinners to make them this spiritual house, this holy priesthood. And my dear friend, I want you as a Christian to see yourself in these words that we look at in 1 Peter because they're so, they are so graphically describing your spiritual descent. I don't know how much... Um, importance you put on your physical descent. If you ever try to trace your family tree, well, it's a huge problem because there's only so far you can go back in this little country to try to find out who was who or who your forebearer was or whatever. But remember this, that's much less important, very, very much less important than your spiritual descent. Because there was a time when God, who had ordained you to eternal life, by His Spirit stepped into your life, and He made you part of this spiritual house, and He brought you into this holy priesthood that is mentioned in chapter 2 and verse number 5. Christian, grasp afresh the great privilege extended to you to be part of that priesthood and to be in that spiritual house brought out from among the multitudes, set apart by the Holy Ghost, made a priest unto God and unto Jesus Christ. And let me tell you today, let me remind you today, there is no greater honor that could be given to a member of Adam's fallen race than that honor. And that is an honor. I mean a spiritual honor, spiritual privilege. The Lord took you. He lifted you out of where you were. He brought you out of your sin. You were nothing. You were hell-bound. You were eternally doomed 
unless God stepped in, but He did step in. And therefore, never forget your spiritual descent, no matter what else you may think is important in life with regard to who you are or what your job is or anything else. It must all take... uh, it must take a lesser place completely to what you are in Jesus Christ. Now, if you will just keep your marker in First Peter 2 and go back to uh, Ezra chapter 7, or you may not have to, but just let me say this, that something said about Aaron in verse number 5 uh, there in Ezra 7, it says, Aaron the chief priest. Now, this is tracing, remember, Ezra's descent, and it goes right back to Aaron, and Aaron is referred to as the chief priest uh, in verse number 5. Now, the word chief means head. We understand what is being said here. Aaron was head of this priestly family. And Ezra's relationship to the head of that priestly family is clearly enunciated. And let us note, therefore, that it was because Aaron was chosen and constituted by God to be the chief priest, the head priest of that family of priests that Ezra now has any place in that holy office. And that brings out another little detail. We've looked here at the fact that believers, Christians, are a priesthood. They are part of a a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And let us remember that that is so because of our union with the one who is the chief priest, the head priest of all things, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to go back to 1 Peter 2. And look with me at this, 1 Peter 2. And you will find that in the Lord being constituted head priest, those joined to Him in the new birth have a place in God's holy priesthood. It comes out in an interesting way here in 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 4 for a moment. It says, To whom, that's to Christ, to whom coming as unto a living stone. Notice there how the Lord is described, a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now, In what way is the Lord a living stone? What does that signify, that phrase, a living stone? He's a living stone in the sense that He died, but He rose from the dead, and He became the source of the spiritual and the eternal life of His people. And then He transfuses that eternal and spiritual life into His people so that they become spiritually alive. And you'll see that then in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Ye also as lively stones. And the word lively is exactly the same word as living in verse 4. So Christ is the living stone. That's singular. He is the one who died, who rose, and from whom we derive our spiritual life. And that's now mentioned in verse 5. Ye also as living stones. The word lively here is plural in verse number 5, and therefore it takes in all Christians. And therefore we have had transfused into us the life of Jesus Christ, that blessed life, that, that one who's the living stone makes us living stones in the temple of Almighty God. And my friend, 
the Christian someone who's alive. I mean spiritually. Let us exhibit that. Let us demonstrate that. We'll say maybe more about that a little later. But if you're a child of God, or everybody here who is a child of God, you are being described as a living stone, and you're a living stone built into this spiritual house by virtue of your union with Him who is the living stone, because you're joined to Him and united with Him. Oh, the great doctrine of union with our living head. Turn to Exodus 28 for a moment. Exodus chapter 28, please. And look with me there at verses 9 and 10. Here's an illustration of this matter of being in union with a living head and, and deriving life from Him. Exodus 28, verse number 9. It's the chapter where you've got the garments of the high priest described. It's an interesting chapter, and I would encourage you to read it as much as you can. But look at verse 9 here. We've only uh, just note a couple of verses. Exodus 28, verse 9. It says, And thou shalt take two onyx stones, and grave on them the names of the children of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, the other six names of the rest on the other stone. Now listen to these words that close out verse 10, according to their birth. And so there's the high priest. He wears these holy garments. One of them is called the ephod. And on the ephod, on the two shoulders of the ephod, there were these two stones, two onyx stones. We're not really sure what kind of substance that was. It doesn't matter. But on those two stones there were inscribed all of the names, the twelve, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, so that when the high priest went in before God, he was carrying the names of Israel on his shoulders. And that's symbolic sense. And because their names were there, they were remembered. But notice those words, according to their birth. And the thought there is, of course, of the twelve tribes, and there was an order in their birth. There was Reuben and Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and so on, the order of the twelve tribes. I'm sure some of you people could rhyme it off. And that's how the stones were written down. So there were six on one side and six on the other side. But it was according to their birth. It brings out, it illustrates this point I'm making, that we are living stones because we are united with Jesus Christ, just as those stones on the shoulders of the high priest attached to the ephod were joined to the high priest, and the names of Israel represented in the person of the high priest as he went in before God. So the Lord Jesus makes us priests unto God because we are joined to Him. Oh, my friend, I trust your heart is thrilled today about these matters, that you're, that you're enjoying what the Lord is showing you here about your standing, your descent of a spiritual kind. Now, just as Ezra, because of his descent, became a priest, because he's joined to, to Aaron in that genealogy, and all that's illustrated there by Aaron in Exodus 28, because of all that, he holds this position. He's God's man. He's there to do a work. And there's no other explanation 
as to why there are men and women across the face of the earth who are the servants of God, who are priests unto God, who serve in the holy temple of God, I mean the church of God, who live for God, walk with God, who uh, exhibit a likeness to God. It's all because of union with the Son of God, the great high priest. He makes us what we are. We sang from that hymn early this morning, hymn nine, and I did it. I had you sing it deliberately, just two verses, but one of them was specifically a choice of mine. Please turn to Revelation 1. And let's look here at a verse or two that help, will help us with what we're seeing, this matter of our descent, our spiritual descent. Revelation 1, verse number 5, and into verse number 6. And it says, And from Jesus Christ, this is a greeting that is sent to the seven churches through John's pen from the triune God again. I'll just read verse one, or sorry, verse four with you. It says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Revelation 1, 4, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, that is God the Father, from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. And in those terms, you have Jesus Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king set before you. But read on with me. Unto him that loved us. Now listen to this language. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now listen, Christian, and note this, Christian, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's a royal priesthood, kings and priests unto God. Actually, in 1 Peter 2 again, you'll find the phrase, not only a holy priesthood, but the phrase, a royal priesthood. And the same thought is here, made kings and priests unto God. And what we're noticing here is that when you think about, when you think about Aaron and then right down the line to Ezra, Ezra not only was descended from Aaron by virtue of birth, but Ezra also had a standing as a priest by virtue of sacrifice and precious blood. Because the whole economy of redemption ran down that line in a very specific way. What was the high priest? He was the only one who could go in before God into the holy place. That's why he stands for Christ. Who were the ordinary priests, his sons? They were those who handled the sacrifices. They were those who took the, the blood and they sprinkled it here and they sprinkled it there not only in objects and articles, but on people, God's people. God's people were a blood-sprinkled people. The book of God was a blood-sprinkled book. The Bible says that over and over again. And therefore, everything points not only to birth, but thank God it, it points to the precious blood. And here's what we find. Christ has made us a holy, a royal, a spiritual priesthood, how? By His own blood. 
Do you see the wonder and the value of the blood theology coming out here as we talk about our descent, our spiritual descent? Here we are being shown that Christ having washed sinners makes them this royal priesthood. And therefore, through His atoning sacrifice, through the shedding of His own blood, they have the standing now, you have the standing, Christian, of being a priest unto God. That's why we sang that verse, unto Him that hath loved us and washed us from our sins and hath made us kings and priests unto God. Because it's all clearly revealed in the theology of the book. Unto God and His Father, actually says there in Revelation chapter 1. And therefore, what a standing is this. We have a priestly descent by birth and by blood that we might serve God. If you take Ezra and his ministry, what were the two main things that Ezra would have done or with which he was involved as a priest before God? And for one thing, he shows to us that we have acceptance with God through sacrifice. Being a priest, Ezra would have been fully familiar with the sacrificial system. He would have known inside out every offering that God required. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, the meat offering. He knew about every one of them. He had to. He's God's priest. He's ministering to Israel as they come back or are already back from Babylon. He's got to reform them and get them back into line with God. And therefore he knows, he knows that there's acceptance with God alone through that one sacrifice prefigured in all those sacrifices of those Old Testament days. Like Ezra, we have acceptance with God and thank God we have access to God. That sums it up, dear Christian. You come before the Lord this morning. You meet here in God's house. Why should God accept you or me? Why should we have access to Him as a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a spiritual house of Christians, taking our constitution, spiritually speaking? Why should that be? It's because we've been born of God and washed in the blood of the Lamb. No other ground, no other reason, no other descent worth talking about. And there truly isn't. There's nothing worth talking about, singing about, whatever. But who we are in Jesus Christ. Here's Ezra's descent. Please go back to Ezra 7 as we come near a close and we have Ezra's diligence. His diligence. In the last verse that we read, Ezra 7 verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgment. That verse tells us that Ezra had prepared his heart before he ever left Babylon. It says it, doesn't it? Ezra had prepared his heart, had prepared his heart, you know, people wonder about Ezra. I don't know what age he was at this point in Ezra 7. I have no idea. It doesn't matter. But people wonder, well, why did he stay in Babylon? Why did he not come back earlier? 
Why is he only coming now? Here's the answer. He was in Babylon. He knew his day would arrive. But while he was in Babylon, he was getting ready to go. He was preparing himself for the work that was yet to come. And that work brings out his diligence because it all revolves around the law of God. Do you see that in verse 10? Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And there are just three things there that I want you to notice about Ezra's diligence. The first one's there. He studied the law. The second one is he submitted to the law. And the third one is he set forth the law. It's very easy because it's right in the text. Verse 10, he had prepared his heart. That means that he had studied the law. He had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. The word seek indicates that Ezra studied the law of God. Now, Ezra was a scribe which meant that he was a man who wrote out the Word of God. That's what the scribes were for. They would take different parts of Scripture and actually copy them out for the benefit of the Lord's people. No printing presses in those days, all hand-copied. And there was a whole selection of men who were called scribes, and that was their painstaking task to sit down with maybe Genesis or whatever and copy it out and copy it out and make multiple copies. And they had to be exceedingly careful. But Ezra also wrote the Word of God. I mean, he wrote this book of Ezra and it's believed he also wrote Second Chronicles and First Chronicles and so on. But that's beside the point. The whole point, therefore, is that Ezra's a man who who studied the law of God, he knew the law of God. And notice the fountainhead of that study. It says he had prepared his heart. His heart was right with God. He saw the need to have a heart affected and moved by the Word before he could ever minister to the Lord's people. The Word prepared there in verse 10, actually means directed. So he directed his heart. There he is. He's a meditative man. You can almost see him in your mind's eye, sitting down in in, in Babylon, wherever he lived, wherever he was, and he's meditating. He's directing his heart into the things of God. He's thinking about the Word. He's preparing himself. What will I do when I get back to Jerusalem? What will I say to God's people? And therefore, he pours in all his energy and all his affections to the study of Scripture. There's the fountainhead of his study. It was the preparation of his heart. And Christian, prepare your heart every day. Don't miss this. You must prepare your heart to be a priest unto God. I mean, that spiritual priest must sit at Jesus' feet and hear His Word and be prepared to go out and serve Him. He studied the law. That's the fountainhead of His study. He prepared His heart. Then there's the focus of His study. It was the law. Now, what's important about that? This will come out more and more as we move on through here in uh, in future messages. What's the importance of that? It's by the law that there's the knowledge of sin. That's the reason. Israel have already fallen away 
But we will see this in chapter 9, chapter 10. They have turned to intermarriage with the heathen. The Lord is grieved. The Lord is displeased. Ezra has to correct it. Therefore, he studies the law. That's his focus. Because I've just quoted, the Bible says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Why does society today have no knowledge of sin? It's because there's no preaching of the law. And that's so important. Let me say this from this pulpit. That's the first thing Ezra would have taught, the law. Undoubtedly brought them to the cross because in the law Christ is also seen. But the point is you can't get sinners to the cross. You cannot move them to see their need of Christ until first of all they're moved to feel their sin and their guilt and their condemnation. And Ezra therefore sets out as he studies the law to focus on the law as it is the means by which sin becomes real and apparent and vivid and awful in the mind of the sinner. There is Ezra studying the law, then Ezra submitting to the law. It says in verse 10 again, he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, listen, and to do it. Ezra lived what he preached. He was in submission to the law of God. In that, you know, he was like Christ. Acts 1 verse 1 tells you about all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Before the Lord ever said a word, he lived the life as nobody else, of course, ever lived it. Here's Ezra. He's doing the same, only, of course, not to the same degree. He's just a man, but he is truly submitted to the law of God. You see, what we are impacts what we say. And that's what Ezra is showing us here. What we are impacts what we say. He studied the law, he submitted to the law, and then he set forth the law. It says at the end of verse 10, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgment. If you look at verse 6 for a moment before we close here, Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. That word ready is a lovely word. It's a word that signifies the idea of a heart that is bubbling up and a heart that is really taken up with the things of God. If you'll just turn quickly to Psalm 45, and verse number 1, or listen to it as I read it, you will see what I mean. Psalm 45, 1, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. There's the very same word. He was a ready scribe. And the word writer here is scribe in Psalm 45, 1. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. In other words, the psalmist is declaring here that his tongue was eager to speak of Christ. And the reason why that was so is because he can say, my heart is indicting a good matter. My heart, literally it reads, my heart is bubbling up. Therefore, I'm ready to talk about the Lord. Do you see, my dear friend, 
that you can only set forth the gospel and set forth Christ when your heart is right with the Lord. When you have a heart that's taken up with Jesus Christ and it's bubbling up with joy as you think about your Savior, your Redeemer, who He is, what He has done, and you want to talk about Him, you want to make Him known, in that way you will set forth the truth of God as in no other way. And may the Lord bless His Word to us today. Ezra's descent and Ezra's diligence. May the Lord work those features into us, and may He bless His truth to all of our hearts. Could we bow together in prayer? And when I have prayed, then the organ will play, and those who are not staying for the table may leave during that point. So let's just unite our hearts. Father in heaven, we pray that Thy Spirit will write Thy Word upon all of our souls, and Thou wilt be with us as we dwell on these matters. Come down today, tabernacle with us, we pray, and make us like Ezra, but above all, make us like Christ, and change us into His image. Be with us now at the time around the table, and may Your presence be fully known. And your hand be upon us there, we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.